Anything, anything, anything for money would lie for you, would die for you, even sell my soul to the devil. I didn't write that, but Michael Jackson did um, in a song called Money and his, in his um, history album um, back in 1995. He said of that album himself that it was his most autobiographical. Let me take you back another 10 years. Some of you are going to get very excited about this. We're going to go to Pink Floyd. They enjoyed the rock and roll lifestyle of the, sort of the late 70s, 80s. Well, no, a bit, bit earlier, wasn't it? Um, and with all the millions that they earned, they wrote this. Money, get away. You get a good job with good pay, you're okay. Money, it's a gas. Grab that cash with both hands and make a stash. New car, caviar, four-star daydream. Think I'll buy me a football team. Whatever decade you look at, whether it's in lyrics, and that's just a silly thing, is, but, you know, or, or in the newspapers, money has been massive news. And it is today, isn't it? Pink Floyd, of course, typify that kind of 80s boom-bust era where the gap between rich and poor in this country, in the Western world, grew as never before in modern history. That luxury lifestyle, that kind of accumulation of wealth... Um, And that ostentatious kind of flaunting of one's personal wealth as a kind of a sport, a hobby, became that kind of way of life. Now, the 90s, things calmed down a little after a few kind of um, crashes on the market. And Jackson kind of typifies, Michael Jackson typifies that kind of protectionism, that that do-or-die attitude toward money that pervaded the culture in that time. It's kind of mine. I've earned it, it's mine to spend, and I will crush anyone who tries to get hold of my money or mean that I can't accumulate more. Has anything changed? Because my boys were into Jessie J at the moment. Can't stand her personally, but there we go. Um, I I thought I'd take us on to this kind of decade. She wrote this in my boys' favourite song at the moment, Price Tag. Oh, dear. Why is everybody so obsessed? Money can't buy us happiness. Can we all slow down and enjoy right now? Guarantee we'll be feeling all right. I said it with a bit of lilt there, didn't I? Just to kind of give it a Jesse J feel. <clears throat> That's a lovely thought, isn't it, in those lyrics? But is it representative of the culture which you live and work in? Because some of us might want to say to Jesse J, yeah, it's a lovely ideal. And it is quite easy to say, isn't it, when you've sold a record and it's got to kind of quadruple platinum and made you a multimillionaire. It's okay for you to say that because you can slow down and enjoy right now. Now, I I guess many of you will know that and and see, and you're part of it, that the culture which we find ourselves in is consumed with money, getting as much as possible now today, I don't think we, we generally could feel that money can buy us every kind of happiness, complete happiness, as, as perhaps some might have said you know, decades ago, uh, certainly in the 80s. But certainly we feel it can buy us some form of happiness. Flicks or any magazine, advert after advert, shows you products, whether that's clothes or watches, cars, holidays, Jewelry, the magazine, they show us and they tantalise us, don't they? That if we have that particular product that we're looking at, if we have the money to obtain that product, we'll be happy like the person in the advert. We'll have the smile on our face. We will be content. 
But when you've got that product, are you? Really? Content? It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, when the Euro lottery reached its um, highest ever a few months ago, I think it was over 150 million, apparently tickets were being sold in this country at the most alarming rate. Every second a ticket was being sold. Uh, and one commentator put it like this way about that. They said, money has become the answer to discontentment, to so many disappointments in our lives and the culture around us. Everyone thinks money's the answer. But is that true for you and me? See, I, I guess when the answer to any aspect of our lives is, well, everything will be sorted if I just get a bit more money, I guess, and you put that into church as well, I guess if that's the answer, perhaps now is a good time to take stock. To view, how we view our money is, perhaps we just need to regulate that with God's word and see whether we are really uh, listening to God and submitting to him with regard to our money. Perhaps a bigger question is, where is God in our money? Well, Psalm 24 has been very helpful for this series, and Al kicked it off brilliantly by showing that um, Psalm 24 verse 1 very helpfully reminds us the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and that, of course, includes our wallets. But we like to think our wallets are, are perhaps a very private domain, not to be asked questions about, whether at work or even in church. Oh, of course, at church, in our relationships, we like to think we can talk about everything, can't we? And that could be relationships. That's a great place to talk about our relationship. How much we're reading the Bible and how much we're praying. But are we ever accountable to one another with regard to our money? It's very rare, isn't it? And probably would be considered quite rude if you were to ask a question of someone else within the congregation. Say, how are you spending your money at the moment? Mm. A friend when he began working in the city, earning quite good money, he was challenged by another friend of ours uh, to say, um, you know, why didn't you go and find someone who's earning the same amount as you within the church and disclose all of your bank statements and credit card statements to them every month to see what you're spending your money on, to be accountable for what you're spending your money on. And he's done that for the last eight or ten years. And he said to me the other day, it's very liberating. But where was God in his money? Well, I have to say, when I, I look at my friend, I think it's right in the centre of his big, fat wallet. He's a wealthy man. He wanted to make sure that not only his relationships, his work, um, his leisure, his mind were under the lordship of Christ. He wanted to make sure they were under the lordship of Christ, but... Listening and obeying God as we hear him in the Bible was important to my friend, not only in those things, but also on the issue of money. But what about us? Well, tonight we're going to look through the Bible as I've shown to hear God speak on this issue. As I said, I'm not going to stick to one passage. It's broad overview. So we can hear God speak, as John brilliantly pointed out at the beginning. We're going to hear God speak with his wisdom and instruction with regard to money. Now, I want to be clear. There aren't going to be any pointed applications toward, right, hear this, give the church lots of money. There's not going to be an application that way. I just want to let God speak through his word and give all of us an opportunity 
to respond prayerfully and individually as we see fit before God. So I'm going to ask four questions. They're printed on your sheet at the back there. You'll see them there. And hopefully what I've tried to do is summarise a large chunk of what God graciously tells us about his money that he has given us to enjoy, as in Psalm 24, verse 1. So the first question I'm going to ask is, um, and I think it's one of the biggest points that God raises about money in the Bible, is are we servants of God or money? Can you turn with me to Luke chapter 16? If you've got your fingers in uh, Luke 12, that's not too far to jump. So Luke chapter 16, verse 13. Perhaps someone could shout out a number, a page number. 1050. That's Neil's job for the rest of the service, okay? So you've got to be quick. 1050. Okay, Luke 16, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What Jesus is alerting us to here, as he does elsewhere, and, and other authors within the Bible do on numerous occasions... Jesus is showing us that money can master us. It can, as used elsewhere, enslave us. We can begin to serve it. We'll look at that more in a moment. But Jesus' point here is that we cannot serve two masters. It's either God or it's money. Now, if that sounds a bit too radical, consider the fact that for Jesus, within the Sermon on the Mount, greed, that is, that, that is the intense desire for money, greed not only shows itself in the, in the love of obtaining more money, but also in the excessive anxiety about not having as much as you think you need. See, our feelings, our emotions can be so driven by our bank accounts. Back in Luke 12, which um, we, we heard read, Jesus already said that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. See, to consist in the abundance of your possessions is to be defined by your possessions. So if you were to take all your possessions, your your bank balance to drop to zero, um, would you be lost as an individual? Well, if that is the case, then you have to ask the question, do you serve money? Does it define you? If within your own heart, your personal identity is tied up with what you earn and what you own, then I think it's clear that you serve money. It has become an idol to you. You've placed it before God and worshipped it, essentially. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which I know many of you have read, and I would encourage you again to read the chapter Uh, on money in there. It's it's quite fantastic. He very helpfully points out what people do with idols in their life, and especially in in our service of money. Um, Three things that we do with idols, and he points and shows we how do we do this with money. What do we do? Well, we love them, we trust them, and we obey them. And then he applies that to money. You see, if you love money, what do you do? You begin to daydream about what you might achieve if you had more money. One helpful way of doing that is perhaps looking on your internet history and seeing the things that you've looked at and think that you might never be able to afford those things, but you've looked at them anyway and daydreamed about what if. And that is why so many magazines are quite unhelpful, aren't they? 
I'm not saying I'm not a big against magazines or so, but they can be very unhelpful because they make you so dissatisfied with what you have and being given. So, if you're if money's an idol, you you love it. Uh, secondly, you trust it. You'll find your security in your wealth and enjoy the control that the, your wealth brings. Thirdly, you, you become a servant of it. You, you will obey it in a sense. You'll sell your soul to that idol. As Keller puts it brilliantly, because we look to money for our significance, that is we love it, uh, and security, that is we trust it, we have to have it. And therefore we are driven to serve and essentially obey it. See, if you live for money, the significance and the security that it brings, then you are a slave to it. it, it its core, you, sorry, you obey its call to get more and more, to accumulate and accumulate. You will either serve God, trusting in Him and Him alone for your security and your significance, obeying Him, Or you will look for your significance and your security in your wallet and your bank balance. It's God or it's money. Which is it? Now it doesn't mean that you cannot work hard and earn huge sums of money as I guess some of you do here. Uh, And let's be honest, in comparison to the world, all of us do. We are so wealthy in comparison to so many people around the world. It doesn't also mean that you can't inherit from family members who have sacrificially set aside amounts of money for you in your inheritance to set you up for the future. Proverbs is littered with wisdom for the hard worker who will be rewarded for his toil. Do note these down, but I'll flick you through some Proverbs now if I can. So Proverbs 10 verse 4. Proverbs 10 verse 4 says... Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. Also, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 23. Proverbs 14, verse 23 says, All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. The, the, the general principle in the wisdom literature is that if you work hard, if there is toil and labor, there will be profit and there will be wealth. Maybe not as much as others who live up on the common or wherever that may be. But this is wisdom and we know it to be true. If you work hard in school and if you go to um, and work hard at university or whatever you do in your job, you will have the potential to earn more and you will earn more. With obvious exceptions sometimes. See, God is not against wealth and money. But this initial question... What it does is it, it raises the issue of the fact you can't serve both God and money. It's a matter of our hearts. Which does your heart trust and depend on in life? Which do you serve first and foremost? Let me try and give you an example here. I was chatting to a friend the other day. Um, and uh, we were re- reminiscing about times where we used to lead Bible study groups in the city, up, up in London. Uh, and my friend was telling me how much fun it used to be. Uh, sometimes, and only sometimes, 
Um, you know, used to you know, used to leave your desk probably before everyone else left their desk, and you know, be, well, you know, it's a bit of a slacker and so on. But off off you go, and you go and lead your Bible study, uh, and then you pray with the guys, uh, and then you chat afterwards to make sure they're encouraged and walking on in their faith. But then sometimes, sometimes, because you'd left early, you might have to go back to the office. And it was interesting at the conversation, we were both laughing about this. We were both saying, that was awesome. That was such a privilege to be able to not be defined and consumed by that work that gives me more and more money, the hope for promotion, the bigger wages, but to be consumed by serving God and listening and abiding by his word. It was thrilling. It's intoxicating to be, if you like, that much in love with God that you want to serve him that sacrificially. It is rare, those situations. But it is, it shows who's the master in the person's life. Who's the one you serve? Is it God? Or is it the job that can get you more and more money? And if it's money, you might think twice next time, won't you, about leaving your work in order to come to home group perhaps on a, on a Tuesday night. You might not want to make the sacrifice if the one you serve is money, but you might be willing to make the stand if the one you serve is God. I know there are exceptions, don't get me wrong, but they are few. Whatever money you have or you don't have, which is your master, God or money? Are we servants of God or servants of money? Secondly, And more quickly, are we content with the money we have? If we could all turn to Proverbs, that would be great. Proverbs, I guess it's about slap bang in the middle. Neil's going to be there. Proverbs 30, 666. No comment. Proverbs 30, verse 8. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. The falsehood and the lies here that this verse warns us of and that we so easily believe in the culture around us are the lies of the world around us. The lies that we deserve or need to be rich, to be wealthy beyond others. I guess most of us will qualify by that and sort of say, well, I don't want to be crazy rich. I don't want to be kind of some multi-billionaire that has to have security with him the whole time. Most of us just want a couple of million so we're a little bit above everyone else. That would be alright, wouldn't it? That sense of need breeds discontentment, though. For although we may have so much in comparison to the majority of the world, we never compare ourselves to those starving in Africa, do we? We never compare ourselves to them. Wanting beyond our needs or greed is, is not just in our mind. It is born of our surroundings. We look and see what others have got amongst us, amongst our friendship groups and amongst our colleagues. And what do we want? We just want a little bit more than them, don't we? Therefore, what is luxury for most of the population of the world becomes a necessity for us, doesn't it? Not because you actually need it, but simply because everyone around you has it. And the sad thing is, we can't even see this kind of greed and discontentment in ourselves. Items that were never on our shopping list a few you know, months or years ago, we suddenly get into a particular group of friends and everyone's got that, and suddenly it becomes, it's the, the must-have item, we must sacrifice everything else in order to get it. 
You know, our friends have been on a particular holiday, which we never have dreamt of going on, but they went there, and suddenly everyone else is going there, and we feel we must go there. It's a necessity that we go there to find out what it's like, so that we can have gospel conversations about the... No. The things we do to justify those things. Often we are blind to the greed that boils up inside us, numbed by the kind of normality of it in our culture. But God speaks into it with, with this verse, and of course many others. I've just picked this one. Keep those falsehood and that lies far from us. Uh, don't listen to those around you. You ought to be saying, give me neither poverty nor riches, but only my daily bread. Being content to trust in God's wisdom is tough because all around us, other messages are being absolutely thrown at us, aren't they? You need that car. Everyone's got that kind of car. You need that car. You need those shoes because the dress and the outfit just won't be complete without it. And the bag, of course, as well, because that really works. You must have the extension on the house. This is one I hear more often than ever because this is what my peers are doing. You need the extension on the house. Do you know why? Because your darling children can't live without that much square foot to play in. We're in London, darling. We must do it. Proverbs itself notes that, um, sorry, we're not content with our daily bread. Now, firstly, I don't think we're content with a more simple standard of living because we see the popularity of the the wealthy around us. And, And Proverbs actually points out that the wealthy will have more friends because of their wealth. Uh, Proverbs 14, verse 20. The poor are shunned even, because of, even by their neighbours, but the rich, they have many friends. And they do. It's obvious, really. So we find ourselves wanting more and more, and when we don't get it, we become discontent with our lot. Secondly, I think we lack contentment for that daily bread, that simple life, neither poverty nor riches. We, we lack contentment because we trust money more than we trust God himself. But we must listen to all of the Bible, and certainly the wisdom literature, in saying that God will always provide for our needs. Proverbs 10 verse 3, for example. But our contentedness is dependent on who we serve, money or God. And God in his wisdom says to us, and the wise amongst us will listen, give me neither poverty nor riches, but only my daily bread. Now, we're warned from poverty because many occasions within, liter- uh, within wisdom literature, it, it, poverty is, a, is warned against because it traps people. It tempts people to find wealth, to find money, illegally or immorally. I think that's an obvious point that we will all understand. But why does God warn us from riches? Surely that is ideal. If we won the lottery, we'd give it all back to the church, wouldn't we? Well, I think God warns us because... Well, have a look at Proverbs 13, if you can. Proverbs 13, verse 8. The warning is stark here, I think. Proverbs 13, verse 8. Neil? 647. Proverbs 13, verse 8. A man's riches may ransom his life, but a poor man hears no threat. You see, with riches comes a threat. The holding of your life to ransom. Because riches, wealth, money in in great amounts can captivate our heart and our minds, consume us. And when we begin to trust in them, we must hear other warnings. Turn to Proverbs 11, 
go back to a page or two. Proverbs 11 verse 4. Yes, the wealth might captivate our hearts, but understand its value. It is worthless in the day of wrath. That day to come of judgment. So we can say as Christians, and it's very countercultural, isn't it? Give me neither poverty nor riches, but only my daily bread. So the question remains, are you content with what you have? Neither poverty nor riches, but only my daily bread. Nearly every one of us here has riches to varying degrees. Think of the world, how much they have, many of people. We must try to ignore the lies that whisper discontent into our ears and change our thinking from viewing something as a luxury to viewing it as an utter necessity for my life. And as a father living in an area where it seems to me children seem to get everything that they possibly can desire, it's a continued pressure that, that I face and Sarah and I face at home and I would ask you to pray for us. Because what, what I need to show to our boys is that, that they can be content and that true contentment can only be found in the security and the safety of the Lord Jesus Christ. Serving in him and trusting in his promises. And that simple life of daily bread is, is, is a good life. It is a satisfying life. And in comparison to others, we have so much and we should be content in that. And I pray you are too. So are you content with the money you have? Give me neither poverty or riches, but only my day bread. Third question. Are you generous or stingy? Let's turn to, uh, back to uh, Proverbs uh, again. Uh, why don't you go to Proverbs 28 verse 22. Proverbs 28. We'll look at that in a moment. So contentment, now generosity. And both are linked actually because both are the wonderful indicators of serving God rather than money. If you serve God, you want to be generous, don't you? In response to his generosity to you. If you serve money, you'll just want to keep it to yourself. You'll be the stingy one. And the wisdom of Proverbs is again very helpful here. Verse 28, verse 22. A stingy man is eager to get rich and is unaware that poverty awaits him. See, someone who lacks generosity will not become rich. They may, they may keep lots of money to themselves, but poverty in other ways will come to them. And if you are stingy, God says, you will find yourself poor. Uh, we can think, for example, that's probably with friends. If you're not generous, you, why would anyone want to be your friend? Generosity is encouraged for friendship, but it's also in, in the care of family, in the form of inheritances, and so on. So Proverbs 13, verse 22, I've mentioned already. Uh, such generosity is encouraged because it is an act of love and care for your family or loved ones around you. But throughout the Bible, generosity is encouraged mostly to provide for the poor. The wealthy are told not to exploit the poor. For example, in chapter 22, verse 22, and later on in 28, there's quite a lot of passages and verses in Proverbs in chapter 28 about the care for the poor. And whatever part of the Bible you turn to, generosity towards the poor is encouraged again and again and again. Now, we don't have the time to essentially to examine what poor really means, whether it's a category that we actually know and can see in this country with all the benefit system that we have. Whatever is the case, it doesn't take away from the continued call 
that we have from God to take care of the poor. And that may mean in this country or around the world. We are called to be generous with the, God, with the money that God has given us, not stingy. In serving God and being content in Him, we will want to be generous, both giving within the church, of course, but to the poor in comparison to ourselves and all the needy um, in the community around us. Of course, this is massive news, isn't it, at the moment, with the Occupy movement. There's camping outside St. Paul's and in Times Square uh, over in New York. Uh, they, they, compa- they are campaigning basically for economic justice, aren't they? Because they observe that, if you like, where, where generosity used to be, if you like, part of culture, um, it is now sort of been completely removed, certainly from the, the higher realms of, uh, of the business world. People in positions of power used to be there to serve and provide. They are now very much, it seems, doesn't it, there to provide for themselves and themselves alone. Every person of this country may have underwritten the 1.3 trillion towards the recent banking crisis that we've just going, we are going through. But it, the bankers are now striding away with average wage rises of CEOs this year at 49%. The Institute of Fiscal Studies reported this year that incomes amongst the top 1% have grown at the fastest rate uh, in, the whole, uh, in this whole country's history. Top bankers will get paid over 1,100 times more than the lowest paid employees of their bank. That difference has never, ever been as big. The rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. The gap is getting wider and wider, generous or stingy. The stingy man is eager to get rich and is unaware that poverty awaits him. Do you think bankers are popular at the moment? Why is it that the CEO of a recent bank has just had to put security around his house and employ people to keep him safe? But what can you and I do if you are stuck in this rat race? If you're making your way up to the city each day? One of the protesters outside St Paul's, who himself is a very well-paid city worker um, executive, said this, it's an appalling treadmill. The moment I stop running to keep up with it, I'll be discarded without a second thought. This in a career I was always taught from knee height would be a worthy one to aspire to. Well, I think we need to just hear God's wisdom on this. Don't be stingy. And be generous towards God's church. Be generous towards the poor and the marginalised in our world. Generous to show that you are not a slave to money and that you love to use it for the happiness and support of others in reflection of what God has been generous to you with. Let's move on. I'm sure we've got many questions about that. Um, and I'll, I'll ask certainly some of you city workers to respond uh, to that as well. Last question then. Are we debtors to grace? Much more quickly. If we serve God, not money, then it will particularly show itself in our contentment and then generosity. We've seen that. But ultimately, we will be, it will be as we respond to the grace shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you turn with me to Luke chapter 19? Luke chapter 19. Mr. Page number? 1053. Luke chapter 19. Thanks, Neil. Many of you will know the story of Zacchaeus. If you don't, um, we're going to look at that just for a moment. 
Zacchaeus is a despised tax collector. In fact, he's the uber tax collector in the Greek. He's the tax collector of tax collectors, the greediest of the greedy. Um, He basically um, would extort his fellow countrymen for his own gain, conspiring with the Romans. But when Jesus entered Jericho, you'll know the story, Zacchaeus, the little man, climbed up the sycamore tree to get a glimpse of Jesus. Jesus saw him, and he asked Zacchaeus to climb down and to dine with him. A offer of grace, of acceptance. The despised one was accepted. Who was Jesus to to welcome such a despicable man? And how would Zacchaeus respond to that grace? Look at verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Jesus pours out his grace and acceptance on this pretty wretched man. He loved him and, as we see in verse 9, he saved him. Salvation has come to this house. But how does Zacchaeus respond? He can't pay, can he? He can't pay Jesus for the grace that has been bestowed on him, that acceptance. It's a free gift, but he responds, doesn't he, with all that he has. He doesn't just follow the kind of the letter of the law, see how much I can kind of withhold back. You know, he he doesn't go back to the Old Testament and say, oh yeah, I'll I'll just keep it to that amount. No. He gives back what he's taken four times. That's kind of with about 300% interest, people say. Jesus promises that salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house. And notice it doesn't say that salvation will come if you do this. No, Jesus says salvation has come. The changed life of Zacchaeus comes in response to the salvation that has been offered, the free gift. And what will our response be to the free gift of Jesus' death on the cross, dying in our place for our sin? See, if we think, oh yeah, think about money, I'll give back 1% of what I earn. The money that God's given me to steward. If I just give 1%, maybe 2%, maybe, maybe 5 maybe 10 that, That's kind of reaching the, kind of the Old Testament standard of the tithe, 10%. Have you really understood, if that's your thinking, have you really understood how much you are in debt for the grace that's been bestowed on you through Jesus Christ? Have you received more or less of God's revelation, more or less of his truth and grace in comparison to the people in the Old Testament who gave 10% as a tithe? Tim Keller brilliantly puts it this way. Did Jesus tithe his life and blood to save us? Or did he give it all? Are we debtors to grace? How are we and our wallets going to respond to salvation coming to our house? Lastly, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, puts it like this. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty 
might become rich. Jesus, enthroned in heaven, comes down to be this baby boy, lives a perfect life, and dies brutally on a cross, so that we might be substituted in his place, clothed in his righteousness. We need to respond to the richness of that grace because we are its debtor. But lastly, watch out. Go back to Luke 12, verse 15. Very, very uh, briefly. Just remember that last verse. Luke 12, verse 15. Watch out. Luke 12, verse 15. Mr. Pageman. 1045. Brilliant. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. See, the funny thing about money is you might not even know that it has become an idol. It's got between you and God. You may not realise that your life is, consists or is defined by the money that you have and the possessions that you have, as it had done for Zacchaeus. And that is why Jesus, in this quite haunting verse, says, Watch out. Watch out. It's interesting, isn't it? So many other idols in our lives, so many other sins in our lives. And Jesus doesn't have to say, be careful or watch out. He doesn't say, be careful that you're committing adultery. He doesn't say, be careful that you're stealing because you know that you're committing adultery. You know when you're stealing, don't you? But he says, watch out. You might not even know that you are being defined by your wealth and by your money. Money is so deceptive. I doubt Zacchaeus ever thought he was being ever more defined by his possessions until it was too late. He'd become consumed by them. And Jesus simply says to all of us, as a warning to close, watch out. So, just to look at what we've gone through, where is God in our money? Ask the questions of yourself quietly now. Are you a servant of God or money? Are we content with the money that we've been given? Are we generous or stingy? Are we a debtor to the grace shown us in Jesus Christ? And are we going to hear the warning to watch out? I've said enough. And uh, I wonder if people have got any questions.